Hey, I'm Will. And this is Benj. We're both church planners trying to work out how to form churches in this post-pandemic world. I lead a church that's trying to grow big. And I lead a church that's trying to grow small. But we share an interest in the beautiful and diverse future of the church in Australia. What will it look like? How will it adapt and innovate and thrive? If you're asking these questions too, then join us as we host a range of conversations with diverse thinkers and practitioners around what comes next. Welcome to the Forming Church Podcast, brought to you by Gen 1K and our vision to see a thousand healthy churches in a generation. You might already be having these conversations within your tribe, but we want to form a community that brings divergent thoughts together. My name's Jamie. I was a church planter and now I'm helping others to plant churches as the Gen 1K mission team leader. Instead of this increasing polarization, we want to learn how to explore different perspectives with a commitment to learning from each other. So at the end of every episode, I've gathered some friends for a roundtable conversation to explore how these ideas might play out in your context. Follow us on Instagram and join our Forming Church podcast Facebook group to add your voice to the conversation. Benj Gould, could I make a somewhat of a confession to you? <laughs> you can make a confession. Well, for a little while now, I have had just somewhat of a, a soft man crush on you. Thank you. I think you are a, a great human and a great uh, church planter and Jesus guy. Now, my confession is that uh, you're not the only one oh. I have a little man crush on. I and th- recently I developed a new, you know, maybe, maybe I'm falling pretty hard for our guest on this episode. Look, it's it's um it's disappointing to hear that as a as a former. You're not you're not man. knocked out. Okay, I, you know, I think I can hold multiple. I just don't know. I don't know that there's enough room in your heart. <laughs> but look, it's it's uh it's very it's very easy to fall for this. He's one of the kindest people I've ever spoken to. This oh, is, seriously, this is the first conversation we've had with him, and it felt like we were best friends. I know. It, he lives around the other side of the world, uh, in Seattle. Seattle. Our guest today lives yep. in Seattle, but I really feel like he was just like, he wanted to invite himself to either of our houses for a coffee. Yes. And he would be so welcome. We had a conversation with Tim Sorens. Yes. And uh, he is the co-founding director of the Parish Collective, which is a growing network and global movement of Christians reimagining what it means to be the church in, with, and for the neighborhood. A real focus on being planted locally, being embedded in your in your neighborhood, which, you know, we both love. Oh, such an inspiring guy. I just, uh, before we interviewed Tim, you know, smashed through his book, Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are. And uh, seriously, a fantastic book for me. It just like reinvigorated, reawakened um, my passion to see church, not just in a building or at a certain time of the week, but everywhere you look, you know, in in the people who are um, partnering with God in all kinds of ordinary local spaces around us and yes. uh, just being part of the renewal of all things. And the foreword was written by Walter Brueggemann. Which Walter Bruggs. Which is, if, if you know Walter, it's a big deal. Tim, if you could uh, hook us up with a interview with Walter, we would old, very much enjoy that. Old Walt. Love that guy. Uh, Tim lives in Seattle with his wife and uh, they are starting South Park Neighborhood Church and uh, they own a, a coffee shop and like a co-work space called the South Park Idea Lab, which just sounds like the coolest thing in the world. It is so cool. He's just doing cool stuff. Very cool guy. Well, uh, you're going to love this conversation. You're going to fall in love with Tim. I hope you have room in your heart. If you've already got other, you know, man crushes going on, add room for Tim. Add room for Tim. Hashtag, hashtag add, add room, room for Tim. Tim. Here we go. Well, Tim, why don't you just start by telling us what a normal week in the life of Tim looks like? Well, first of all, it's a joy to be here. A daily life uh, rhythm. Well, I wake up early. I'm one of those people who I've got young kids and the only way to maintain sanity, which doesn't happen every day, (laughs) is to wake up at about 5.30 a.m. and uh, either write or get some time to think and write and Usually from 5.30 to about 7.30 when my boys start to wake up is my best creative time. And now that we're all experiencing this pandemic, I'm like a lot of people. I'm on honestly like two to four hours of calls, like Zoom calls a day with my colleagues from 
uh, here on the west coast of the U.S. and some others from other parts of the world. And I also, m- my daily habits would probably be go, I, with my wife, own a coffee shop in our neighborhood. So I pop by the shop. I'm, uh, we're having this conversation. I'm in another small venture that we started called the South Park Idea Lab. So I'll often come here to work. It's just a small little co-working space and, and neighborhood space. Um, and then by, you know, five or six, like a lot of people, hopefully I'm wrestling with my boys and taking the, our big fat chocolate lab for a walk and um, hanging out at night. Amazing. I feel like there's so much common ground. I heard you speak on another podcast and mentioned that you're an Enneagram 7 that you have two, two little sons. I'm exactly the same, Enneagram 7, two sons. When you talk about co-working spaces and kind of that entrepreneurial spirit and just, you know, the, the mashup of uh, kingdom in the neighborhood in those tangible ways, I just get so excited. So, yeah, I feel like we're friends. The question for me is, is the coffee up to Australian standards? Oh, well, this, this might hurt. Are you talking about Melbourne or are you talking? Oh, wow, wow. Look, I, I, I would be we, – we can talk about Melbourne. That's fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll put aside our, our pride. <laughs> well, I, uh, I think that it is. Um, it, obviously, Seattle, uh, Seattle coffee, coffee in Seattle is a big thing. And, um, yeah, it is argued that uh, coffee is a different level in Australia, although a lot of your friends in Victoria are, um, I would say, more globally renowned for their coffee initially. However, uh, I think our coffee is fantastic, but uh, I'm, not a, I'm not as much of a coffee geek as – as I probably should be. <laughs> Tim, you, um, you ran an experiment with your son and the word church, which I loved and I thought was hilarious. Can you tell us about that experiment? Sure. About my oldest son is nine now. When he was, you know, two, three years old, acquiring a lot of language, uh, it struck me that the, the words that matter most to me, he was going to start to pick up. And when I was in university, I studied rhetoric. And one of the main ideas of rhetoric is essentially that words create worlds. It's a big idea. And uh, of course, the word church means a great deal to me. And so it, it just dawned on me that this word church, he's going to use it in ways that create an entire world and might actually profoundly form him in ways that I don't even necessarily like. And so I had a little bit of a parental summit with my wife and talked to her. I used my rhetoric degree and had a little bit of a parental summit and said, how about this? How about now that our son is acquiring all this language, what if we never allow him to say a phrase like mommy, daddy, are we going to church? Like, that's just like not allowed. We'd say, you know, mommy, daddy, are we going to the church building or church service or the program or liturgy or something like that that's more descriptive, but that he would not grow up beginning to think that you could even go to church. I mean, that would be like, you know, going to the basketball team or something. I mean, that, that's just, you can go to a game, you can't go to a team. And um, so yeah, we made this pact. I'm a bit more passionate about it than my wife as far as the, uh, being on top of it. However, uh, to this day, I mean, he's nine now, he knows quite clearly that that is not how you say it. And uh, every time he talks about it, it's always followed by building. And in fact, he gets annoyed with other kids or he'll think, hear things on like the radio talking about the church in ways that frankly don't make sense. And I find whatever sugary substance I can and shove it in his mouth right away. <laughs> uh, I love it, Tim. I, I love that idea. And you spoke in your book about the fact that we can't really go to church, but we, the church is something we belong to something we're a part of, something that we get to participate in. And it, it is in all kinds of unexpected places. Your book is called Everywhere You Look. And uh, I love all the stuff in there about language and about how sometimes we kind of betray our language using it in these ways that don't actually match our deep ideals and values around some of these things. One of the things that stood out to me in the book was you kind of set up this difference between when we ask the question, what is the church? which many of us have done and I'm sure there are many people listening to this that have had lengthy, you know, philosophical conversations about what is the church 
which often leads us to questions of size and shape and structure. But you say that the whole question changes when we just add the one word for. What is the church for? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how do you kind of answer that question when you think about what the church is for? What are some of the things that come to your mind? I I appreciate that question because I do think that little, those three little words of four actually create entirely new pathways for us. I think it's pretty healthy and interesting and all that to ask questions of what is the church? Uh, And, but when you start to say, well, what is the church for? you can begin to go down an entirely different pathway. And frankly, I think that this is happening within our kind of shared cultures all around the world on all kinds of levels with all kinds of institutions. Like it's a different question to say, what is marriage than what is marriage for? Does that, you can almost feel it. Or what is economics? Okay. You can answer that in one way. Well, what is economics for? Or what is money for? That's Mm. a, that's a different question when we're beginning to drive at the, essential purpose of something. And that's what I feel like we have to wrestle with as it relates to the church. It's just way too important. And so what I would say it's for is pursuing the dreams of God within our contexts, for within our neighborhoods and, and largely around the world, of course, but that's what the church is for. And if we don't keep asking ourselves and discerning from scripture and from friends around the world, I think it's all too easy to have a default posture where without meaning to, and I don't think it's often intentional, the, the answer to the question of what is the church for is essentially the church itself. Mm. Like, what is the church for? More church. Well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. But if you look at what a lot of the defaults that were handed, or we just kind of do without meaning to, there's just so much understandable anxiety and fear and scarcity around a lot of our church circles. We're just wanting to survive that it can feel scary to say, well, what is the church for? Because that's always going to ask us to extend ourselves to others as opposed to protecting our own survival. So if we look back and say, what's it for? It's for the shalom, the dream of God. There's all kinds of different language for it that I actually think is quite interesting and helpful. I talk about in the book how, you know, shalom is obviously a deeply biblical and Jewish way of getting at God's dreams for the world. I love that language. I like the idea of thinking about God's desire. I like, um, you know, African-American communities in this country uh, of the United States have talked about the beloved community, which is very holistic. Different Mm -hmm. indigenous leaders here have talked about the harmony way, but it is essentially the good news of Jesus Christ that uh, everything is being made new that there's not a molecule on the planet that God doesn't want to restore and redeem. And if the church exists for that, like that's what constitutes our purpose, well, then that sends us, it actually propels us out into our worlds. And, and it also requires, an, in some ways, a secondary question, which is where? Uh, and that, I, of course, I'm quite passionate about as well. And I think that that kind of follow-up question, well, where do you begin to try and discern the dreams of God is actually quite important. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I, um, I stumbled across your other book, The New Parish, uh, a couple of years ago. Randomly, I was just on Kindle, just looking uh, through books, and, and the name just stood out to me. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I was beginning to explore planting our own church, uh, which we launched at the start of 2019. And... Um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for that because it was really transformative to the way uh, that we approached what we were doing um, wow. and the concept of the new parish and being committed to neighborhood and being committed to place, which is really so so foreign for, uh, you know, my age group, millennials. Like we just don't have that anymore. We don't have village. We don't, we're not connected to the land. We're so sort of transient and we're commuting online and we're commuting to church and we're commuting to work. Um, could you just... Uh, expand on that idea of the new parish and what that means, what that language means, where it's from, and, and what do you see uh, the church of the future heading into this idea of being connected to place? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for those kind words. That's incredible to hear, Benj. The new parish was a book that I wrote with two dear friends that was trying to get at how do we recover 
a deep focus and sense of place as what it means to be the church. And the reason for the title new is that the word parish, which might come off in different ways to different people, like Catholics might think of it in one way, Anglicans in the UK have, you know, a very built up system. In the United States, you know, if you're in, say, New Orleans, it's like the county, it's like a governmental term. So, um, and yet we feel like it's a word that could be recovered for the gift that it it offers us in this moment, and maybe at all moments. I felt like the word new is important because it didn't just connotate geography, and it wasn't just about, you know, one centralized congregation who, like, is first to market and gets to tell everybody else what to do. It was far more of how do we recover a geographic sense of responsibility kind of holistically as the people of God. And then that, of course, ties into the question we just talked about is discerning what God might be up to and what are the dreams of God in this place. And how we defined it in that book, which I borrowed again for this project, is that the parish, or you could say the new parish, but a parish for how we're talking about it is a geographic area that's large enough to live a lot of your life, you know, live, work, play. It's not just a, a purely, say, residential area, but it's small enough to be known as a character within the story of that place. And what we have discovered over the many years is that we think that the parish is essentially kind of a, a fundamental uh, ecosystem for human flourishing that connects us with all kinds of different people, systems, opportunities, that's, like I said, big enough to kind of get after it and small enough to be known. And when we take it seriously, here's the thing that I'm maybe most excited about right now. Um, when you live in a culture that is increasingly polarizing, increasingly antagonistic of the other, whoever that other might be, different political orientations, different ethnicities, different philosophic persuasions, age, gender, all that. When you take an actual place seriously and try to be responsible, literally like responding to what God might be up there, it subverts most, if not all of the ideologies that keep us apart. And I think that is medicine for us right now. I think that's a dare that we need to receive. Uh, I think that it's not trying to take over the entire city or the county. It is literally responding and being responsible for a particular place. Because when you try, everyone listening to this knows, when you try and love other people, you find out it's hard. <laughs> you find out that you're not just the savior of this thing. You need salvation as well. That you're, you're not just on mission in this place. Uh, you need to receive formation mm. from this place as well. It's not so simple as just, got it, I've got my mar marching orders and now I can get after it. It's far more complex and frankly healing to be responsible to the actual land and the systems that are there and the people that are there and all the intricate stories and characters, frankly, that are there. And um, I definitely believe in connecting across places that's so much of my work. But if we can't wrestle through how are we becoming more embedded and rooted in a particular place and uh, responsible to it, I think without that, without that sense of groundedness and rootedness, we are at risk of giving our, our lives to some other ideology, which almost always pits us against other people. Mm, so good. You, you just dropped a little concept there that I'd love to explore more. You, you, you talked about that neighborhood is not just for mission, but it's for formation. Can you explore that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people, you know, church planters, missional thinkers, think about their neighborhood as a mission ground. And, and so they should and be connected there and, and you know, want, want the best for their neighborhood and their neighbors. But can you explore that idea of neighborhood as formation? Yeah, I'd love to, Ben. I, um, it actually comes out of the reality of I have been deeply blessed and formed by a lot of the kind of Missio Dei theology and missional church literature, a lot of common friends there. But um, particularly at the neighborhood level, when it's not just, say, a people group, like hanging out with artists or moms or whatever, when it's the diversity of an entire neighborhood, 
it, it begins to reveal all kinds of blind spots that you might have. And I think that God doesn't just want us to be a, you know, an asset in God's desires to remake everything. I do believe that, but I also think that God wants to change us and mm -hmm. form us into the image of Jesus. And when you try and do stuff, you realize very quickly that you need to be, you need to change and form as well. You know, your patience is tried. Your, you know, the, I mean, my colleague and friend Paul likes to joke about how, you know, that scripture where Jesus is saying that we need to forgive each other 70 times seven. It's a lot of forgiveness. It's like when outside of like everyday life in our neighborhoods, when would you ever even offend people that many times without just like, checking out, right? I mean, I'm probably outside of a marriage. I think marriage is probably a good example or family. But I think that it's actually uh, an impulse that we actually, I appreciate the question so much because we need to draw it out. Uh, without that, the colonizing tendencies that a lot of us might have can be quite strong, even if entirely unintentional. Mm. So it just feels different to say, yes, God, how will you use me to bless others? Beautiful question. It's also a, a beautiful question to say, God, how will you bless me? Or how will you change and form me by being present with this place and these people? Um, I just think it's really, really important. And um, it's an ongoing task. But I actually think it's a little bit of a missing piece in a lot of the missional uh, church kind of language. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful idea. I love it so much. It makes me think about how often we tend to try and copy-paste things into church. So there might be great community parents groups. We'll just start a new one that's got our stamp on it. And for me, uh, Benj and I are both church planters, but we're kind of planting with different approaches, both having a strong in-the-neighborhood approach, but I'm trying to do more of a very small, simple church model. Um, and for us, that's kind of been liberating to go, we don't need to start new programs or initiatives. We just need to find all of the good stuff that is already there in the local schools, in businesses, with our local government, you know, the culture, the kind of creative arts, uh, what's happening across all generations, and just get on board and see beauty there and be, have a mutual exchange of being, uh, yes. being re receiving as much as we have anything to offer. So when I read you uh, identifying maybe some of those blind spots that we've had or some of those missing parts in that, um, that whole discussion, it, it awakens and energizes something in me. So love that. I wanted to um, chat to you about one of the quotes that stood out to me. I, highlighted, I probably highlighted more of your book than I left unhighlighted. So my highlights <laughs> are somewhat meaningless. <laughs> But this was one of the parts I highlighted that I'd love to just chat to you about. There's this quote, on the one hand, millions of mostly young people are giving up on the church. It just doesn't make sense to them. And as a result, they are placing their attention, hope and time where they believe more change can happen. On the other hand is a movement that sounds an awful lot like make the church great again. But both of these impulses make a profound mistake in asking questions about the church before asking questions about what God is doing. Ironically, the more obsessively we focus on the church, the harder it is to focus on God who is making all things new and is active in our everyday lives. And I guess my question for you would just be around how do we find the balancing point between loving the church, wanting to explore like this whole podcast is about what does the church of the future look like? How can we have that conversation without accidentally putting the church like before God or kind of making church another idol in some ways? Do you have any practical advice around how we can hold it in the right place? Well, what I'm trying to make an argument for in this book is that the church is absolutely vital. Like I am a church guy through and through. I mean, I believe in the church and the local church especially. And it's because I believe so strongly in the church that I fear of putting the church at the center mm. because it's almost like asking to put, you know, 20 gallons of water in a two gallon bucket. It just can't contain it. It doesn't mean it's not important. It's just, it's, it doesn't work that way. So what I try and do in this particular book, and I've seen this happen with churches and, uh, you know, missional communities and new monastic communities all over the world is when the center is how we've been talking about at God's dreams. That's like their big why that's their driving purpose within a place. 
and they really have the act of faith and trust to follow the spirit, then that those questions, which I think in some ways are actually bigger and create larger environments from there, then yeah, we have to wrestle with what does it mean to be the church? The fear is if do you begin with, you know, how do we, how can we be a better church or how do we be a cooler church or how do we be more relevant or these are, how do we just get bigger, right? That's the fundamental church growth question. There's nothing wrong with that question. It's almost always from a, a good intention. Almost always. <laughs> the problem is when we keep asking church questions and we just get church answers and mm. we're losing out on so much of what God is up to. So what I desperately want to see happen in our lifetimes, and I think it is, I think the tide is turning, is to kind of float within the river on the two banks that are just said there. On the one hand, there's a lot of people that I think are just throwing their hands up in the air and giving up on the church. And that I think is uh, egregious in some ways. Like I lament that reality. I, th I think it's not just not the way to go. I think we're losing out on some of the most incredible opportunities we're going to have in our lifetime to affect change and join in what God is doing now and is pushing forward into the future. But on the other hand, I think there is kind of a doubling down on let's just make the church, like I said, great again, or let's, let's fix the church. And I don't think either are going to get us there. So mm. I want to keep along with lots of other friends like the two of you pointing us to in some ways a third way or an alternative to say it's not so much either or it's not make the church the center or forget the church. It's let's try and do our best to discern where the healthiest church questions fit mm. and realize that there it's almost always going to come after the, the God questions. And I think by ask by, by forming that, amongst ourselves, not just as church leaders or church planters or pastors or congregational leaders, but as everyday followers of Jesus, if that can become more of a habit, if that's just our default, God, what are you doing? I mean, I wasn't taught this. This is not, I was raised in a delightful Christian family and went to Christian grade school and then eventually got a master's in divinity, which is, you know, the worst title of any master's degree there is. But I'm, you know, I've been steeped in this stuff, but I haven't necessarily been formed and taught to just put language around what God might be doing. It, it's hard to do. I mean, and yet without it, I feel like we've just got whatever techniques we can muster up to do our best. So I really appreciate that question, Will, because I think it's at all either or. And I'm actually fervently praying to see uh, more and more of uh, a movement of folks that are saying, we need to be the church in the neighborhood. We need to f figure this out. We need to be connecting. Um, that's a large part of the work of the parish collective is to say, how do we connect people to be the church in the neighborhood? Because the truth is, even in our post-Christian cultures in Sydney and in Seattle, there's a ton of us that just don't know each other. And we're like, it's in large part because the church questions are so dominant that we're missing each other mm -hmm. and missing out on what God might be doing. Yeah, awesome. It's very good. I feel like we could talk about this stuff for another three hours because it's uh, it just resonates so much with, uh, you know, we, we both have different approaches to church, but um, very much have uh, similar sim similar philosophies in, in some ways and, and everything you're saying just resonates so much. But just to finish up, just to honour your time, um, we would love to just give you a few rapid fire questions. And uh, if, if you're up for that. I'm totally up for that. That's fun. Sounds good. All right. Are you ready? Yep. Number one, what do you think is the biggest danger to the church's future? Individualism. Very good. What's giving you hope about the church's future? You guys. <laughs> What's influencing you right now? Books or podcasts or people? Dr. Willie James Jennings. Uh, he's a theologian who teaches at Yale, uh, African-American man who is writing essentially, and working at the intersection of Christian faith, race, or the racial categorization, and the built environment. I think he's a just a godsend for our day and our time. He's brilliant. Uh, his commentary in the book of Acts is fire. And I really want people to buy my book, but 
honestly, if it's between the two, buy <laughs> Gum Tyrannax. And I just, I'm kind of obsessed with him right now. Fantastic. We'll put, a, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, if you could recommend one book to anybody, and now we're not thinking just about what's influencing you right now, but just long term, what would be the one book that you would give to absolutely anybody? Oh, that is so hard. Oh, my goodness. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing by Soren Kierkegaard. Nice. Very good. Awesome. Well, um, just to finish, if you were to uh, just give, you know, two or three sentences to uh, all our listeners who are, you know, most likely church planters or kind of missional thinker type people, people who are wanting to sort of just get involved in their neighborhood, what would be your your parting uh, gift and wisdom to them? I think it would be that um, despite how crazy things feel right now, and as much as the church can feel displaced and disembodied, that God is doing something profound in our day right now, and we get to join in that. And it's actually a gift, not a technique that we need to crank. So yes, we need to pay attention, and yes, we need to collaborate, and yes, we need to scheme together. But if we do, the revolution that Jesus began is ours for the taking. Beautiful. Sounds like an easy yoke. How can people connect with you, Tim? It's been such a pleasure having a chat today and uh, being able to share this time with you. For people that have uh, heard something and want to follow you or get more in, in touch with your work, where are the best places for them to go? Well, uh, if folks are curious, they can download the first chapter of the book everywhere you look at timsorens.com. That might be one of them plus to start. And all the social handles are at Tim Sorens. It's S-O-E-R-E-N-S. And then uh, I work with an amazing organization called the Parish Collective. It's www.parishcollective.org. And there actually are a bunch of friends in Australia that are connecting. And there's uh, growing energy around uh, that work across the entire continent. So um, reach out there and say hi. You can even kind of um, map yourself and try and see if there's other people around that might be caring about the same things that you do. That's great. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, spending yet another half an hour on Zoom uh, in, in amidst uh, your busy schedule, I'm sure. But um, I've loved Such an honor. the conversation and, uh, and hope to connect with you more in the future. I'd love that. Thanks for joining us. Hey, this podcast is sponsored by Baptist Financial Services. To find out more, visit bfs.org.au. We hope you are enjoying the Forming Church podcast. As fun as it is to listen to our voices, they are not the only ones that matter. Add your voice to the conversation by joining the Forming Church Facebook group or connecting with us on Instagram at Forming Church. What do the ideas in this episode's interview look like in diverse contexts? That's what Jamie, Ken and Pip are going to explore right now. Excellent. In this interview, we heard Benj and Will chat with Tim Sorens about this whole idea of rethinking place and what does it mean to be the church in the neighbourhood. And the point of these roundtable conversations is to practice learning from people with diverse and at times divergent opinions. You might have a different perspective to Tim or Benj or Will or even Pip and Ken, but how can we create healthy debate and move beyond the echo chamber? So we're going to spend a bit of time having a conversation around today's topic. Pip, Ken, what struck out to you in um, today's episode? I, I think the first thing that really stood out for me was the conversation around going to church and church being a building. Uh, mm -hmm. And just how uh, I think Tim says, uses the phrase that when you think about church as uh, more than a building, it creates pathways. And I was like, wow, okay, I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Um, mm. Just, yeah. And the fact that he spent time trying to teach his son, I think, not to say we are going to church, but going to a church building. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I love that phrase that he used that words create worlds. Mm. And I remember when we were planting a church um, over 10 years ago and then when we had our eldest as well, for us um, the, the role of language was really important mm. Mm. and we talked about the gathering, yeah. uh, the place that the church met together and as young adults that was fine uh, but when we had our son and we were trying to explain to him what it was, I remember just confusing the whole matter <laughs> and he turned to me and he said, so dad, what you mean is it's the church house. 
Oh, and okay. so in our family, in our church, we started talking about the church house, the, okay. the, the place that housed the church as they gathered. And so yeah. I think kids, uh, when they pick that up, it does really transform the way they think about the world and how they inhabit that. Mm. Yeah, it's good. I mean, that, that just shows that, that language and, and context um, are interlinked, that we're not going to talk with an adult who's been a part of a church gathering all, all, all their lives the same way as we talk with a young child. It's going to be different. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think I think talk, Tim talked a lot about language and I also really appreciated that phrase that uh, words create worlds. And uh, reflecting on Global Interactions work, for example, uh, is such a key part of what we do, such a, a key value to communicate with people in their heart language. Yeah. Um, because it's not just about learning a bunch of vocab or not just about learning language, but it's actually about entering into someone else's world. It's about becoming a growing participator in their world. Uh, so, again, including all those things, including learning to listen to people, yeah. including learning the right to be heard yeah. and including speaking the message of Jesus in a way that's going to make sense in that world. So, mm. yeah, yeah, that, that was definitely a phrase that connected. Pip, as you uh, unpack that and apply it through your global interaction lens, does the idea uh, that Tim touched on around... Um, place that is small enough for you to be known does that help in terms of creating worlds and inhabiting worlds yeah I think it does and um as he was speaking I think the the place that it's been easiest for me to try to put some of these things into practice uh was in a city that I lived in in Cambodia that had just tipped over the hundred thousand mark so it was quite a compact city uh lived on the main street uh Worked on the ground floor and the first floor of the office building, lived on the third floor, mm. uh, could walk to a lot of places across the road to the market, five minutes drive to a lot of places um, around that city. And it did actually make a difference to be able to connect with a world that is big enough to work, live, play, but small enough that you could become known, uh, at least in some degree, in that community. So, yeah. I think just going back to your first question, what struck me is... As I was listening to uh, Benj and, and, and Tim um, converse, the thing that struck me was in my role in church planting was how when you compare the conversation Tim had with his son and sort of I mirror that with the conversation I'd have with a, a new believer, when you're planting a church, you, you get this awesome core team that has been in church, understands church, and their view of church is what most of our view is, not not the building, but this is where we go to, this is what we do. Uh, but when you get a new believer coming in or a person who's joining the team who's not had any previous exposure to, exposure to church, you find that they're more open to redefining church They're because they have no previous experience, just like Tim and his son. As a six-year-old, seven-year-old, they don't have the language yet. So it's much easier to form that language um, and actually open those pathways for for people who are new to the faith. Yeah. So that that's enough for me. Yeah. Mm. Do you think, Ken, uh, those three letters, F-O-R, what is the church for? Yeah. Do you think that that um, way of phrasing that sentence rather than what is the church but adding the for, do, would that help in those conversations? Oh, it does help me. Just just listening to that is just I'm like, I've never thought about it. I know I have. I've just not put it as clear as had Tim put it, what is a church for? And for, he used two, uh, two examples. What is, what is marriage and what is marriage for? Mm. Money and what is money for? It just shifts the whole conversation and I think helps us bring clarity to, to the whole mission um, that God has called us to. Yeah, it's great. One of the things that Benj picked up that I thought was really interesting was this whole idea around the village mm. and in and from my experience um we 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 really struggle with this whole idea of what it looks like to live in a village and yet there's that phrase you know it takes a village to raise a child and i almost feel like in a western context particularly in suburbia that we actually need to work to create villages uh, to bring people uh, around our children and to do life with people who are different, who uh, and, and that that's not a normal part of our rhythm, uh, mm. but we actually need to be intentional in how we create villages. What do you guys think? I don't know. I, I, I've, I've lived in a village, mm. like literally. So it's, 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 it makes sense to me because in a village, uh, it's not, a village is not defined by boundaries, but by 
by relationships. So, and that's really key. So the extent of the village goes to the extent of the relationships. So if you have relationships that are 10Ks out, that's how far your village goes. Uh, it's not geographical. And so in a village setting, for example, I remember when we'd have to do work, um, work would be, for example, if something needed to be done in the little village center, it was the responsibility of everyone. Whether it was going to the river uh, or bringing uh, rocks up to sort of flatten out the road, whatever, it was the responsibility of the village. It was not the council or anything. And because of that extent of relationship, you'd have people coming from other villages to come and help because of the relationships. So it really does make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. And I think you're right that we do have to be intentional about that uh, in our suburban contexts in Australia. Um, I'm looking at your hat there, Jamie, with the uh, the Pandas, the under-7s football team, which is an expression of that. It's an expression to choose to spend time with these under sevens aspiring footballers. Yeah, the mighty pandas. The mighty pandas. Yep. Um, but I think whether it's just with a couple of neighbours in your block, uh, I think it is somewhat countercultural today and I think it, it is really important um, mm. because un- unlike the, the, the village in Africa, I'm not necessarily born into something here that's mm. really clear that yeah. this mm. is the group of people that you're a part of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm certainly a part of a, a nuclear family that I've been, I, I've been born into, but that's pretty small yep. and sometimes we can even become quite separated um, yeah. as, we, as we grow. Uh, but then just to, to say, okay, what, what does that village look like? What does that parish look like mm. where I am and particularly where I live? Yep. Uh, I think that's, yeah, definitely something that we can think about. You know, I do think there's a sense in which relationship, when I talked about a village being defined by relationships, I've had people, for example, when I was back in Kenya, I've had people even, whether it's from America or Australia, come to visit, and you can tell that they don't belong. They don't belong. But we went to, one time went out for, to a restaurant to have a coffee, and I was with this uh, Aussie family, and they heard another Aussie couple speaking, and something just sparked in them. <laughs> and so they went over and said, hey, how are you? I think those, the couple's from Melbourne. But they're on holidays. You sure they didn't say, quiet down, you bogans? No, no, no. Got you any Vegemite? <laughs> <laughs> we'll not talk about Vegemite. So, <laughs> sorry, I rudely interrupted. <laughs> Keep going. So, so, what I saw, this couple that was with us, for some reason, this couple, so, I mean, Australia is big, but just listening and hearing that Aussie accent created a sense of relationship and they just stuck it off. They just started talking about all things Australia. Now, that is... There's a sense in which when you're out of your space, you realize how much you're part of that space. Mm. That makes sense. Mm. So you could be anywhere in the world and you see someone who speaks like you, uh, talks or eats whatever you eat, and there's a sense of connection. So I think the village metaphor can extend towards that place of relationship. That makes sense. Mm. Um, Yeah. So that's, yeah. Jamie, I was going to say something about that's really struck me that I'm trying to figure out is how do you balance, uh, because you talked about being embedded in place. And I kept asking myself, we want to be embedded in place. We want to form relationships. We want to see uh, you know, our community thrive and grow. But also, how do we balance that with a call to pioneer and mm. to step out and, and, and leave our place? Mm. So that's the tension I'm trying to figure out. How do we balance that out? I still don't have an answer, so I'm just processing that. I was thinking about the the insider accepted outsider type of language that often when we talk about missions we talk about becoming an accepted outsider Mm -hmm. so when I am in Cambodia for example it's obvious that I don't belong there that I'm not an insider I'm an outsider and so we work hard to become accepted outsiders in that community whereas when I'm in Sydney um, or when I'm in Australia, I look like an insider. I sound like an insider. Yeah. And so I think there's times of, of, of challenge in, in both of those. Sometimes when we are obviously insiders and we're very familiar with the culture and the place and the places that we are in, we can challenge ourselves to say, okay, what would it look like? What does it feel like to be an outsider in this community where I am an insider? Mm. So what would it be like to come into this place new? What, what might it feel like to walk around these streets, to look around as someone who's new and to just ask some of those curious questions again yeah. as someone who is kind of pretending to be that outsider in your own, your own community? Place, yeah. That's really um, good, yeah. 
On the other hand, sometimes uh, it's hard for us to actually feel like we're an insider, uh, even when we're, where we are. Mm. And uh, sometimes when people talk about place, they say, oh, okay, if you've you know, bought property and you've lived there for 20 years or so, it's easy to feel like an insider. Uh, but what if you're renting or what if you're in a more um, transient type of a, a place? How, do we, how can we just affirm to ourselves, I belong here, mm. I'm an insider, this is my community and so I can respond and be responsible. Mm. 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 Yep. Yeah. That's good. And I think you're right that there is this tension between being called to place and also being called to pioneer and there mm. might be seasons in, a, in your life uh, that you're called to step out into a new place or – uh, as Pip said, re-examine your existing place through a different lens. Um, and there's going to be times in which you're called to stay. And um, and part of that is discerning uh, where the Spirit of God is leading yeah. you and what that looks like. I think um, in the West, a particular amongst uh, millennials and, and younger generations, as Ben's already alluded to, is this um, the, uh, tendency to live above place. Yeah. And so it's actually hard harder I think to work out what it means to live embedded within a community mm. um, to become a character that is known mm. uh, than it is to yeah. be pioneering something new mm. I think yeah. I, I think the, the reason I was processing that is that I wouldn't want us to pass out the message that it's either or mm. um, yeah. because you have young people you're calling out and, and, and you're challenging them to go out and pioneer yeah. Yeah. at the same time we're telling people it's best when you are embedded yeah. so we just want to uh, just bring that clarity. I think it's like, great. Yeah, yeah, good just, point. Yeah, we just need to think through that well. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's actually when you pioneer, the result of that is that you're embedded in place rather yeah. than pioneering and gathering people up who live above place. It's yes. you gather people to live within place. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. If you guys uh, were to ask a follow-up question, what, what would you ask? Oh, wow. I, I think I'd lean into that same conversation, the question I was processing. Um, how do you, in this new season uh, where we know travel and stuff like that is more restricted, how would you help young church planters, because that's my world, balance the tension between being embedded in place because of the reality we're in, but also choosing um, to pioneer? Mm. So that's, that's I would want to sort of press into that a that's bit great. more. Pip, how about you? I'd probably ask Tim for some more concrete examples um, just to flesh that out a bit. He talked a lot about the the dream of God and pursuing God's dream yeah. uh, together and, and uh, it's a beautiful, poetic, inspiring language. Mm. And I'd probably say, okay, can you give me some concrete examples? And so maybe, I, I don't know, I can put, put you on the spot, Jamie, and say um, are, are there some things happening around Australia that you're aware of of people kind of taking this up and, and, and living out some of these principles? Yeah, I think uh, both Benj and Will would be really good examples mm. where they're seeking to become a part of their, their local community. Benj in at Long Jetty, what does that look like? Um, thinking about the rhythms of that community, thinking about uh, the places in which people gather, the festivals, those types of things. So I think that they would be some some really standout examples. I've got s some people in Melbourne that I know that are stepping into placemaking roles where uh, they're creating communities. So developers build these great estates, mm. but how do you actually help people inhabit uh, the place and develop relationships and those types of things. So I think there are examples of that. Yeah. But I agree. I reckon it'd be really helpful to, to hear more of that stuff. Mm. Mm. If you're going to suggest a, a concrete step forward for anyone uh, in the idea of rethinking place uh, and being the church in the neighbourhood, what's one thing? Um, I think what, for me, a good next step would be that sense of, uh, just picking up from what Pip said, just that sense of, being intentional in understanding where you're embedded, just looking around um, and, and saying, okay, this is where I'm at. How do I be part of this, uh, of what God is doing in this place? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think just, just starting small, um, a neighbour across the road next yeah. door, mm. uh, just really, really where you are, where you live. I think sometimes we can overcomplicate things. We can look at, you know, the new parishes, where I work, where I live, where I play, scattered around here and there, but just choose one of them mm. and, and get to know a, a handful of people mm. in that place where you live. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, guys, for your wisdom and thank you for listening. Remember to join the conversation at the Forming Church Podcast Facebook group and follow us on Instagram. Well, how good was that conversation? 
Tim Sorens. We love you, Tim. Hashtag. <laughs> Make room for Tim. Make room for Tim. <laughs> I don't know if that was our hashtag. But. Oh, Benj, <laughs> uh, for you, you know, trying to plant a church that's growing, planting a church that's trying to grow big, as we say in our, our intro. Uh, in, our, in our clickbait. Yeah, intro, in our clickbait. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did that conversation do for you? What was the kind of key idea or next step? Yeah, it was just a reinvigoration of those ideas that have been shaping me already from Tim around um, the concept of parish. I love his definition, um, which I haven't really grabbed hold of uh, before, was the parish is a, a geographical area that's big enough to work and play in, but small enough to become a character in. Yeah, that's great. Love that. I really see you guys doing that in Long Jetty at yeah. Greenhouse Church. I feel like you're very much connected to that sense of place mm-hmm. and that parish that is yours to to live and move and um, be a relational presence in. So keep going, man. Thank you. Thank you. What about for you? What stood out? Yeah, for me, what I really loved about the chat with Tim and what it did for me was the, uh, the sense of optimism that Tim has for the church without placing the church at the center. And he sort of talked about that, that he's actually, because he is so for the church, he sees the risks of working everything around uh, becoming how do we structure church mm. and instead kind of being deeply optimistic about the church at its best um, while seeking to, to listen to the spirit as our first place of uh, what do we do next and how do we shape what we do should come out of this deep relational presence with God. So I guess at a practical level, I'm just inspired to speak well of the church and to love the church, um, but also to kind of try and position the church within the right place yeah. in my thinking. Yeah, it's very good. It's very challenging, right, as leaders of the church? Yeah. Really hard to do that, but it's a great reminder again. Well, if you enjoyed this conversation, would you share it with someone uh, in person or online or write a review? That would be so helpful because we just want more people to hear these conversations uh, around what God is doing and, yep. and the church that he is forming here in Australia and across the world. And look, if you are a millennial and you know how to leave a review and you have friends listening to this podcast that are a little bit older and they don't know what you're talking about, how do you leave an Apple podcast review? How do you listen to a podcast? Man, just go out and show somebody how. Help somebody. Yes. Teach them a new skill. <laughs> Bring some shalom in the world. Bring some shalom. (laughs) Hey, go into your neighborhood, your parish, and introduce every local person to this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Very good. Well, we will see you next week. And uh, enjoy the conversation. And uh, continue it with your friends and online in our Facebook uh, group. We would love to. Yeah, if you're not already in that, jump in Forming Church Podcast Facebook group. Have a wonderful day, friends. Goodbye. Shalom.